Uncheck two. I'm on. I'm talking. My microphone is on. Are we on? Can you hear me? I'm move it up a little bit. Make it better. Is that good? All right. I think we're ready to go. I want to remind you guys of just a couple things here as we get started. Uh, we've got a lot of people coming in. If you've got some space and you want to scoot into the middle, that'd be great. Give extra room. We've also got some people attentive in the back. If we need to get more chairs and set up, they're paying attention to that. Uh, I have an attendance sheet that I'm going to pass around here just because we try to track where people are at and what they're doing. Uh, that's simply all it is, okay? And so as we pass that around, check your name. If you've been here before, your name should be printed. Just go through, find it, check your name. If not, if you haven't been here, just write your name at the bottom of any of the sheets. Like, it doesn't really matter. And then whatever other information's on there. I think it's uh, email and a phone number. Write your name, those kinds of things. That, again, just helps us keep track, not just of this, but we're trying to look at a yearly basis to see who's interacting with what and what they're doing, okay? So that helps us out a lot. As we go through this tonight, we're going to have opportunity to kind of interact. The great thing about this is that you don't have to just sit there and listen. You get to talk back, all right? And so if you have questions or comments or something that you want us to address, if you please raise your hand. We've got a fourth person who's helping us out in the back. His name is Ben Bellamy. He has a microphone. He may interject some things from time to time, but he's also the person who will come around and give you a microphone if you have something to say. Part of that is because Doc can't hear you. The other part of that... <laughs> is that there's people online who definitely can't hear you, all right? And so the microphone helps them understand the questions so that we're all still together and working in that kind of a way. Does that make sense? Yes. I think that's all the little details and things we got going on. Ben Webb's my name. Doc is with us as well. And uh, this is Carrie Girth. Is that how you say that name? Girth? And uh, she helped us out last week. She's an expert in the field of some of these things, and so that's what she's doing here tonight. We're actually going to start with her in just a moment. Uh, Doc, why don't you go ahead and pray and get us started? I will. The one thing I will mention is that we've got a pretty large number of people in here. We like to have interactions. We've got a lot of material to go through. And so if, we, if we're a little curt, um, cut you off a little bit, it's because we've got a lot of stuff to go through. So ask your questions. But we may be rude, kind of shortening it. Does that make sense? I don't mind doing that, by the way. Um, it fits my character. Let's pray together. It is, it is. It's kind of weird. Now it's back. What's it? Did you see an issue on, on how I was talking? Don't do this. Yeah. It's doing fine. Yeah. It's, All right. it's always the people in the booth who are at fault. It's never your fault, I guarantee it. It's always their fault. All right, here's what we're going to do tonight. Last week we finished pretty abruptly uh, doing, uh, talking through uh, the issues of gender and different things. And we kind of put Carrie on the spot, gave her just a short amount of time to answer a really big question. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start by her kind of speaking a little bit to some of the, uh, is psychology even the right word yeah. for this? Okay. And so we're going to talk about the psychology of some of this. Uh, I'm getting a ringing. If you guys are hearing that, if you can pull it back. Marvin, maybe not. All right. <laughs> and, uh, but Carrie's going to start with this. She's going to open us up and then it's going to be a nice bridge into our conversation tonight. And so she's going to talk about something that's called ACE. 
and uh, how that's connected to the LGBTQ community. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and start. Okay, so um, before I start, I just wanna say that what I'm speaking to tonight um, is not um, meant for any specific person. Um, no one person fits in a box. So the statistics and the concepts um, that I will be speaking about um, may or may not apply to your family. And if they don't, then that's okay too, okay? Um, I also um, did my study and background in a psychodynamic approach, which means um, I look at the childhood experiences and see how they impact who we are today. Um, there are all different types of approaches when it comes to psychology and um, counseling, and that is just the area that I am trained in. So again, um, that's where my field of view is, and it's not as broad as somebody who was trained in a different approach, like um, a humanistic approach or a psychoanalytic approach, okay? Um, so the ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. So they um, were studying uh, high blood pressure and diabetes, actually, and wanted to see what uh, health effects it had long term. So they came up with about 10 questions. And they figured out that there's a specific number of questions that predicts physical and mental health um, uh, issues throughout the lifespan. So some of these questions are about di divorce, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, drinking, substance use, incarceration. So they ask these questions um, to adults and say, as a child, you know, did your parents ever hit you? Were they ever incarcerated? Did they ever use substances? And you get one point for every time you say yes. Um, we've been using ACEs for a long time now. Um, so we've been able to do longitudinal studies and follow people throughout the lifespan and figured out that the higher um, ACEs score you have, the more likely you are to have comorbidities. So depression, anxiety, PTSD, trauma, things like that. Um, so just significance of that is three. So all you need to do is say yes to three questions and you're already at much higher risk than the general population. When it comes to ACEs and the LGBTQ community, um, they are, their rates of ACEs scores are dramatically higher. Um, so I'm gonna get the statistics for you. So 43% um, um, of the LGBTQ community has a score of four or more ACEs. And that is compared to just 12 to 16% in the general population. So it is extremely higher. Um, so the gender non-conforming children, so children who identify as a transgender or non-binary, um, have the highest levels of trauma. And they have reported a significantly higher amount of phys both physical and sexual abuse specifically. Um, so 45% of U.S. children ages 0 to 17 experienced at least one um, ACE score. 31% have two or more. And um, uh, youth from 14 to 18 that identify as LGBTQ among that study um, had 88%. So, so again, I just throw those numbers out there to show the significant difference of how the ACEs scores impact mental health and physical health. 
Um, with that said, uh, one of the things we know about trauma, these, these adverse childhood experiences are, they're traumatic. And when our brain goes through traumatic experiences, it dissociates. The easiest example of dissociation, because we all do it, is you're heading to church on a Wednesday night, you leave your house, you get in your car, and then you're at church. And you're like, oh, well, I, I know I drove here, but I don't like remember driving here. I just, I got here, right? I think we've all done that. Um, that's a dissociation. So your brain essentially separated long enough from your body to not pull a memory in. So you can imagine how beneficial that would be if you were experiencing abuse, right? The dissociation of your conscious awareness of self like deconnecting from your body is a defense mechanism that helps us cope with the abuse or the trauma that we're currently going through. So that relates to what Doc was saying last week um, when he was speaking about the mind-body um, connection. And, and it speaks to how physically our body naturally does that to keep us safe. Um, so interventions would be, if we figure out that there's a high ACEs score, that there is significant trauma, we would, there's assessments we can do to see what level of dissociation happens. And my suggestion would be to do trauma treatment, treat the trauma first, see if we can realign the brain and the body to feel whole, and then go from there. So again, I'm not saying that if you fall amongst the LGBTQ population that we just fix your trauma and you're fine, um, but a large majority, it is helpful. Make sense? Okay. Does anybody have any questions about that? All right, so what, what was valuable in, in my mind as we started this conversation is that there seems to be a, a correlation uh, through science as we've looked at some of these things. There's, there seems to be some connection through the different traumas experienced in a childhood that would lead to these types of disassociations. What's fascinating to me is that this started in a study for high pressure. And so you think through, there's gonna be all sorts of the physical repercussions of uh, the things that, that happen in your childhood. There's also these mental things that, that stick with it as well. Uh, it makes me think of, and I could be totally way off here, uh, there's a book that's uh, called the, the Body Remembers. Is that what it is, Christina? The mind, the body, the what? The body keeps the score. The, God, the body keeps the score. There we go. The body I'm going to mention score. it later, but you okay. did it now. So Fantastic. Yeah. And that's a good resource. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Okay. All right. I'd heard of that. I haven't read it, but it sounds like the same kind of a thing, right? The things that happen in childhood aren't always just left there. We carry the, the effects of those traumas with us into the future, and it sticks with us. All right. Good. Carrie, you can go ahead and just jump on top of this if I'm drawing an improper conclusion. Okay? When I listen to that, one of the things that I immediately start thinking about is that we hear over and over and over again, I was born this way. Okay? And I am, there's no doubt in my mind that when that is said, that is honestly felt. It would also look like, in many, many cases, when you feel like you were born that way, the fact is, um, all of the trauma in your childhood could have driven you in that direction. And so it's kind of a, a countervailing um, uh, piece that you have to take into account. Yeah, 
So I agree with that. Um, th we do have evidence that some people say they're born that way. They don't score high on the ACEs score, and they still feel that they fall into that category. Um, so I think as like Ben and Doc were saying, like that's the exception, not the rule, right? But um, like I said last week, the, the most significant part of development happens from zero to three, and then nine to 14, right? And so that zero to three range, you don't have memory of it, but you're forming a whole bunch of neural networks. Your brain is rapid firing, and that can impact your personality, who you are, how you view things, and how you view the world. Am I back on? There we go. All right. We're going to jump into uh, our conversation, picking up from Sunday this past week. We're getting all sorts of feedback. Are we getting any better? Can you pull my microphone back some? Because it's bothering my ears a little bit. That sounds like we're on the right path, maybe. All right. A couple resources for you just to kind of help you out and see some of the things that we've been reading and working through that are adding the context for us and helping us out. Uh, we have uh, this book, Confronting Christianity, on the left. It's written by a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. It's a very, very valuable resource. Her book deals with 12 questions that are much broader than just this specific issue. Uh, so, so what we're talking about specifically of, of, of homosexuality, that's one chapter that is within... Um, that's within, our, within this book. She deals with a whole lot of other stuff, really valuable perspective, very, very, thought, very, very thoughtful. The other book was embodied, written by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. We mentioned him last week. And then he also has this on Right Now Media. If you look this up, it's called Grace and Truth. It's some videos, little sessions where he works through some of those kinds of things. Uh, and it's very, very valuable. And so uh, those are other resources. Again, if you're wanting to read more for yourself, see where we're pulling some of these things and how that's working out, that would be really, really helpful. Vern, what do we need to do to help you out? By the way, holy cow. <laughs> By the way, um, if you are part of Capital City, you have access to Right Now Media. You may not have it now, but if you need it, I mean, it's a magnificent resource. It's got tens of thousands of resources, okay? Different kinds of studies. This is a magnificent study that our staff went through, okay? And by Preston Sprinkle, and he's really, really good at this stuff. If you want to go through it and you don't have access to Right Now Media, contact Ben, contact me. We'll make sure you have a link where you get signed in. It'll cost you nothing. Church pays quite a bit of money, so it costs you nothing, right? We want everybody to have access to this resource. And so, um, um, I would recommend this pretty highly if you want to dig deeper. Tell me, what are you saying, Alethea? I also linked it to the live feed. This, this video? Okay, the, the sprinkle stuff. She's linked it into the live feed. If you go back and watch this video later, you'll find a link to get into it. Email me, and I'll help you. Is my microphone still on? Yes. Okay, all right. I, now I can't hear it, so I think it's off. It's either on and it's ringing, or it's not on. I don't know. There's no in-between for me. I love being louder than you. Yeah. I... <laughs> Surely not you, Doc. All right, so anyways, email me, bweb at capitalcitychristian.org. Bweb at capitalcitychristian.org. I'll get you the link, get you in. It's very easy to use, very valuable, tons of resources. Check that out. Uh, let's move forward, all right? I want to talk to you a little bit about appropriate judgment. Uh, as we talk about these issues and this subject matter, it's worth noting that I'm a Christian and I'm speaking to a primarily Christian audience. 
there is an apologetics type of an aspect to these conversations, okay? Uh, the, some of the things that I'm saying, some of the things I'm focusing on wouldn't necessarily be the exact way or the exact conversation I would have with someone who is gay or who is lesbian who's coming to me asking what they should do or they're processing or they're even debating me. Maybe not necessarily the same conversation. The conversation I'm having with, with the church on Sunday morning and with you guys tonight is based on the idea of, as Christians, how are we supposed to think about this? What are, we supposed to, what are we supposed to do? How do we view this? How do we process this information, right? And as Christians then, if that's how we're trying to process and work through this information, stuff like this, I think, becomes very valuable. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, What business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Have you ever heard that? The Bible says you're not supposed to judge me. You ever heard that? It's true. Kind of. It's true in the sense that I'm not supposed to judge people outside of the church because they live by a different standard. It also means that I am supposed to judge you. That actually by being part of the church, we have a responsibility one to the other to hold one another accountable, which means judging each other, not in a, not in a manner of condemnation. We still go back to other places in Scripture which talk about restore each other gently. All right, And so there, there's a... There's a there's a posture about it. There's a tone about it. But there's a reality of, of we need to see each other. We have a responsibility to hold one another accountable. I think this makes sense to us because we all understand authority. And we all understand rules. I have three kids in my home. They have rules that they live by. I'm the authority. I get to set that. Your kids don't have to live by my rules, right? Because they're not under my house. They're not under my standards. Now, some of ours may overlap. They may match. But I don't have authority to walk into your home and begin telling your children how they ought to live, right? Okay, in fact, some of you would kick me out, and understandably so, all right? I would kick you out of my house. That makes sense. We, we have different standards. One of the problems, one of the great uh, black eyes to the church is that we've used Scripture to beat people outside of the church for not living to the standard that we've agreed to. Does that make sense? Okay? So when we talk about these things, we have to have an appropriate posture, if I'm talking to someone who's a Christian who's struggling with same-sex relationships, and sexuality, and they're trying to figure out what this means in their life, my conversation with them because of their relationship with Jesus would be different than somebody who's outside of a relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay? That's it. You have to have enough perception and wisdom to understand where they're at, where they're living, and how to appropriately address the situation. With that said... God has the same standard for everybody. God doesn't only call Christians not to be uh, homosexual. Okay? That, that's not the reality. He has the same standard for everybody. And in fact, if you go on from there, the very next line says, God will judge those outside. It doesn't mean that they're escaping judgment. It doesn't mean that they won't be held accountable. It's just not my job. Does that make sense? And specifically, my job is to introduce them to Jesus, not introduce them to rules. Does that make sense? Okay, no one, you're this way. If, if someone showed up to you and they wanted you to join the, I don't know, the Masons or the Kiwanis or any, you know, the Elks Lodge, they want you to join their team. But they start by telling you, hey, here's all the rules you got to follow. Maybe not appealing to you, like not exactly something that's going to pull you in. But if they talk about the value that it adds to you, how, the great benefit, whatever else, maybe you're interested in looking at it and then the rules have a part to play. I, I think that we have to understand that God doesn't call us to rules. He calls us to Jesus. 
And so when we're talking to somebody who's outside of the church, the message is to pull them to Jesus, not to pull them to the set standard that we're called to necessarily. All right, now, Doc, fix all the things I just said. <laughs> I'm not going to. You're right on the right track on that. Here's the deal, guys. Um, as Jesus followers, we try to understand God's will and do it when we agree with him and when we don't, when we understand him and when we don't, because we say he's Lord. I accept Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. When I accept him as my Lord, I'm going to say, God, I'm going to try to do life your way, right? A lot of times what we try to do is we try to force people to behave like Christians who do not accept Jesus as Lord. Now, his standards are no different. You don't get to sin because you're not a Jesus follower with no consequences, okay? But the fact is, until I can get them to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, I'm not going to make a whole lot of progress in radical life change. Does that make sense? My first job, our first job, is to tell people to bend their knees to Jesus because he is Lord of everybody, right? That's the pathway to a life well lived, we believe. And so our goal is not primarily to make them behave like us even though they don't believe like us because it's not going to work. Our job is to make them Christian, which is what he's called us to do, to introduce people to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord because he's smart and he's good and he's powerful and we think it's the best way to live, right? And so that's the, that's the kind of the distinction that Ben is trying to make, right? Too often, we try to force the world to act Christian when they do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and that will always be a losing battle. Always. Our job, first job primarily, is to get them to bend their knees to Jesus as Lord. Ben, did you have a hand up? Yeah, I just wanted to throw in that as I was growing up, um, the word judgment was used quite a bit but nobody did a good job of defining it. So I and a lot of others have defined judgment to mean past judgment on somebody, to set uh, you know, what their quality is, what their value is. And I don't believe that's what uh, Scripture is talking about. I think instead of judgment, it's more evaluation. We should be evaluating things to determine what we're working with, what the reality is, instead of being judge and jury. You look at both this issue and you just look around the world right now. Our world's a mess. Would you agree with that? Okay. They're living out their theology. They're living out their anthropology. If you don't believe in God, who cares? Right? Um, I can remember when I was back in seminary, uh, we had a special speaker come in who was talking about Israel. Because believe it or not, uh, Israel and the Palestinians were struggling when I was a seminarian about 50 years ago. Okay. It's been going on a while. Right? And he said, you can sign all the treaties you want until they stop hating each other. They'll always find a reason to break the treaty, right? Until you change the heart, then all of your band-aids are just that. They're not going to have a lasting impact. Our job, the greatest thing we can do to change the world is to bring people to Jesus. That is it, right? It's the most powerful thing we can do to change the world. Israel and, Israel and Palestine were fighting thousands of years ago when Vern was in seminary, right? <laughs> Is that correct? No, I think he actually goes back before then. Even, even before Vern. 
That's way far back. What's fascinating to me is that as we're talking about this, it's going right back to what you started with. Often, and, and I understand why we do this, it's simple, it's easier to address symptoms than it is to address heart issues. And so what happens is we try to correct behaviors in people without ever getting to the root cause of what's taking place. And you talk about that from a psychology perspective of dealing with what are the traumas that need to be addressed. Uh, from, from a spiritual component, what Doc and I are saying is let's just deal with the Jesus part. Let's deal with the part with whether or not you care about Jesus, whether or not you care that he existed, whether you believe that he's the son of God. Because if we can get that in alignment, if we can get people to recognize that he's my savior and he's also my Lord, then suddenly behavior conversations make sense. You can't fix behavior if the heart isn't interested in the same kind of stuff. Um, so, hey, look at that. I brought it all together. All right. A uh, couple things. One thing that I want to do tonight and I'm just going to briefly introduce this. Doc is going to talk about this a lot more, I believe, this next coming uh, Sunday. But I want to challenge an idea that often comes out within this conversation. Uh, this idea that if, there's, if you don't agree with me, if you don't affirm me, then you must not love me. Okay? And like I said, I'm just going to introduce this. Doc is going to get to go a whole lot deeper on this on Sunday. But there's this thought, there's this idea that if conflict exists, then it means love doesn't exist. And anyone who's had a relationship with someone for more than five minutes knows that's not true. Right? Right? In fact, what I would offer and suggest is the opposite is true. I don't think you can really prove that you love someone until you've endured conflict with them. Does that make sense? Okay. If my love for my wife was dependent on me agreeing with her 100% of the time, you would suggest I never loved her to begin with, <laughs> right? Right? And I don't think I'm unique in that. I think that's real life, isn't it? Okay? Conflict doesn't mean I don't love you. The enduring of conflict, uh, the getting through conflict, the overcoming conflict, even coming to a place where you say we don't agree and that's fine, those are actually proofs of love. Okay? In my opinion. Where it, as long as the relationship still continues forward, all right? If, if you allow conflict to break relationship, well, then you can't suggest that we're stronger and better for it now. But enduring and working through conflict actually builds better, stronger relationships. And the idea that comes from uh, people who say, well, you have to agree with me in order for you to love me. You have to affirm me to prove that you love me. I don't think that's true. I think that there's actually a stronger, more powerful love in the, in the absence of agreement. Yeah, this is a powerfully important idea because you hear this in this kind of debate with, with uh, LGBTQ all of the time, right? You don't love if you don't affirm. And that's just one of the silliest things you can ever think about. It is dumb as a brick, okay? Think about it like this, guys. Um, if you love somebody and you see them engaging in terribly self-destructive behavior, is it loving not to try to stop them? Let's say they're, they're killing themselves in some fashion or they're on, their, they're on a path that you know is going to tear them away from God. We think life with God is the essence of life. If someone you love is on a path that's going to be taking them away from God and you don't try to intervene, what's wrong with you? Right? And I know that we're going to be accused of unlove. Um, accept the accusation. It's not true. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care that you go to hell. Do you understand? 
If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care that you destroy yourself. Apathy is the opposite of love, not wrath. And so we always make the connection here. You cannot have grace without truth. Just like you cannot have truth, God's kind of truth, without God's kind of grace. The two have to be linked. Okay? The idea that you can only give grace with no truth is an absurdity. Okay? We will vehemently reject that. Make sense? All right. We're going to move on. I'm going to review just a couple of things real briefly again, and then we'll get into some new content. Uh, this past Sunday, I talked about a couple things that may be new ideas for you. And so I wanted to just allow them some time to, to relook at them, maybe talk a little bit deeper about them, um, and then uh, see if, if there's any sort of response from that. But there's a couple things that we looked at in the context of the Bible that it says specific to, these, uh, to this uh, specific issue. Uh, and one of them that we focused on was Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, again, I would assume that most of us are familiar with that story. Uh, I referenced a verse in Ezekiel that I said proved something valuable, and so I was going to share that verse with you. This is from Ezekiel 16. It says, This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. The sin of Sodom was this uh, sin of inhospitality, that they didn't care for those who were in need, which is interesting to me. Because as this passage has been used to hurt people who are homosexual, to threaten them or try to guilt them or try to shame them, uh, in reality, according to Ezekiel, what he's drawing attention to is the fact that they were inhospitable. Meaning the Christian who doesn't care for the person who's struggling with this looks more like the sinners in Sodom than the person who's struggling. Does that make sense? Okay. Which ought to offend you and convict you, it at least does me, right? Um, now, with all that said, it's also worth mentioning that this wasn't the only sin of Sodom, <laughs> all right? And so I don't say any of this to suggest that the only thing they did wrong was that they were inhospitable. Uh, they had other sin that was going on as well, okay? There was certainly the homosexuality that was taking place. You had uh, the, the issues of rape of what they were trying to do. Uh, to the people who are in that story, again, if you don't know it, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. It's horrifying. It's terrible. It's weird. It's strange. The whole thing is just awkward, <laughs> all right? But uh, there was a lot of things going on. But among them, for us to hear, is that they were inhospitable, and that was a big deal to God. How we treat people is a big deal to God. It's regardless of who they are or what they're doing, it's a big deal. And so we need to be attentive to that. Doc, you have anything you want to add to that? No, it's exactly right. I mean, you've got a multiplicity of sins there. If you look at the story, these are bad people. And uh, they were wanting to abuse guests. They were wanting to rape. They were um, both the guys. And uh, you know, when he offered to send out his daughters here, rape my daughters instead so you don't mess up these guys. I mean, everything that's going on in the story is bad, right? There's a multiplicity of sins. But as Ben says, what's fascinating, the sin that Ezekiel calls out is the one that we tend not to see. We can identify the other sins and we get outraged by them. One of the things that outraged Ezekiel is the thing that we just passed by and don't even notice. Okay? And 
this whole idea that somehow that you are insensitive to people who are needy or poor or guests or these kinds of things, that you display that kind of inhospitality, um, that bugs God. And that's one of those things that we tend to be able to do lightly without having it tweak our conscience. And uh, that's sin too. In fact, that was the sin that Ezekiel calls out. So you got a bunch of sins. We're not, ben wasn't trying to say that, that everything else these guys were doing were, was fine and the only sin that they had was in hospitality. It's just that he calls out the one that we ignore, right? Yeah. And if you go to, to what we talked about in the New Testament, specifically that 1 Corinthians passage in, in chapter 6, uh, we talked about these two Greek words. Doc, say those words for me so I don't butcher them. Malakoi and Arsenokotai. Yeah. Doc might be able to hold a conversation with you in Greek. I've taken a total of zero Greek classes, all right? So, so he's my resource for that. But one, the malakoi is a feminine word. The arsenikoitai, masculine. Uh, we talked about that Sunday morning, these two different roles. Now, the reason I want to bring all this back up is because this is one of the stronger, more faithful arguments for those who want to defend homosexuality as not being a sin. They point to this and they want to suggest the inequity of relationship. We went in great links on that on Sunday morning. It's significant to me, again, because I've heard this argument and this is the one that they hold on to. And they use this to kind of uh, break the foundation for all the other places that it's used in the New Testament. Okay? The reason that this is a big deal to me is because within the text, within the specific verse that it's in, they're both mentioned. Even though it's translated into one word in our language, they're both mentioned because they're both spoke poorly of. Both of them uh, have to do with those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're the ones that Paul is calling out. He's both parties. This isn't about inequity of relationship. Um, and so that's a really, really big deal to me. In fact, it's on the next slide. Uh, both words are mentioned. Also this, and this is, this is one of the things that holds me up, Okay. Uh, in conversations that I've had with people who are on the other side of this, who are trying to defend it, who are trying to explain it, who are trying to understand it, who are trying to even figure out what it means specifically for them. The thing that I can't get past, for sure, even if we disagree about the Greek words, the thing I can't get past is that there's zero language in any part of the Bible that opens a door or gives a precedent for this being a good thing, for this being an acceptable thing. Specifically, when we go back and we talk about Leviticus, and we say, you know, there's these rules that we've moved past. Well, there's some places in the New Testament that directly address those rules and say we've moved past them. Okay? There's, there's precedent for some of these things for us to understand this better. There isn't anything in the New Testament that gets to that place. So, I still don't necessarily agree with the wording and how they want to use Greek language. Um, but even if I could potentially get to that point... I don't find anything that is actually uh, in defense of homosexuality or is, is pro uh, that kind of a lifestyle and that being a good godly thing. Yeah, let me just uh, unpack a little piece of that. He re used the phrase inequity of relationship several times. You've got to understand that in that world, um, some of the homosexuality that was being practiced was, for example, where you have an older, mature guy with a young boy. That's an unequal relationship. We still see that today, where you've got an adult with a child, and we say there's inequity in that relationship, right? One has power, the other one does not. 
And we laws against it. We have laws against it because we still see that as a problem. Because we see it as a problem, yeah. Where you have, a, in a situation where you might have a slave owner and a slave, well, the slave doesn't have the power to resist the slave owner. Or you might have someone who is rich with someone who is poor because that person who is poor needs that person who is rich. That's an unequal relationship. And it is argued at times that what the New Testament is criticizing with respect to homosexuality is not level homosexuality, two people who love each other, who are roughly the same sociological strata, but what it's criticizing is people who are unequal because those relationships were in that world. Okay? What Ben has suggested is yes, they were in that world, but the, the texts doesn't, particularly if you go to Romans, isn't talking about unequal relationships. I mean, it's talking literally about equal relationships. And the fact is, is when you look at the words, it refers to both sides of that. Don't be, the, don't be the, uh, the power. Don't be the powerless. Don't get in that kind of relationship. And what he was saying is that both sides of that are being identified as sin. Now, sometimes, if you are absolutely powerless, and if you were raped, I don't think you have sinned. Does that make sense? Um, you enter into relationship even with someone who's more powerful and is willing, that's, you're still culpable. Now, if something is forced on you, that's not you. That's not your choice. That's not your heart. Okay? And it stands to reason that Paul wouldn't go after someone who's been abused. There's, there's, again, for me, this goes back to the only time we, we, or when we see Paul giving instructions, it's because we need to be told. And so he, just, he doesn't have to tell us, don't be abused. We know we shouldn't be abused. And so it makes sense that he's, again, speaking to both of these parties. This is kind of maybe things that you've never thought about, that you never had to consider. Maybe you've not heard these arguments. Before we move forward, any questions or, or thoughts on any of that that we need to make sure that we hit before we move forward? Okay. We're going to move forward. Uh, one thing that I wanted to spend some time on Sunday, but we just did not have the time to even broach this subject, is the role of boundaries and intimacy. I believe that they're linked, and we see it in all sorts of different arenas, okay? Uh, for instance, uh, there is a spatial component of boundaries, meaning appropriate spaces to be in and not be in, okay? Um, I like the NFL, and I can't watch football anymore without Taylor Swift. And so now I just have all these Taylor Swift examples in my head, all right? So if you go to a Taylor Swift concert, you'll notice that there's partitions. There's places that prevent you from going certain places. You have to be in specific spaces. That. You've never noticed that. Doc hasn't been there. I haven't either. All right, but, but I've been to a concert. And there's, there's barriers, right? You're allowed to be in certain spaces. You're not allowed to be in other spaces. And we recognize that as a good thing. Because if there weren't boundaries, there wouldn't be a concert. She'd walk out on the stage. She'd get swarmed by people. And no one would get to enjoy a concert, right? Boundaries actually create the opportunity for the intimacy of the event. Does that make sense? Spatial boundaries protects and it adds to the intimacy. There's a context of temporal, meaning uh, like time, meaning there's appropriate time for us to sleep. There's appropriate time for us to work. There's appropriate time for us to play. When we misuse those times and we abuse those times, it breaks our opportunity to also do those things. So if I sleep when I'm supposed to be working, 
well, then I miss the opportunity to work when I should be sleeping, right? Like, and it, and it, it messes up the whole rhythm of all those things. There, there's, a, there's time boundaries of how things function, and they all then interact or, or, uh, or mess with my opportunity to just play and enjoy life, right? If all I ever do is enjoy life, but I don't ever sleep and I don't ever work, I have some major mismanagement of my life, and it's going to hurt me in the long run, if that makes sense. Same with relational. In the context of relationships, there are boundaries that exist. When we respect boundaries, it increases intimacy. When we abuse boundaries, it decreases, it ruins, it hurts intimacy. Okay? That's the, that's the case I'm going to make. Before we move forward, I want to define the word intimacy. Because for some of you, you may be hung up on that word, intimacy. And oftentimes when we think of that word, we immediately go into a sexual component. That's not accurate. If you look up the word intimacy, this is just straight from a normal dictionary. The first definitions we have have nothing to do with sexuality. Intimacy means a close familiarity or friendship. Okay? A feeling of being close and emotionally connected and supported. This is really weird for men to talk about, all right? But there are different kinds of intimacies and different kinds of relationships in different appropriate ways, okay? And we know this. We just don't like to say it, okay? But we know this. We know that there's guys that I go hunting with and there's guys that I might have lunch with and they're not the same, <laughs> right? Okay? Those are different levels of intimacy. You don't, don't call it that. Don't even say that to them because they'll stop wanting to hunt with you, okay? But... <laughs> But it's different levels. Does that make sense? Okay? We have different things. And within that, if we abuse the appropriate boundaries within those intimacies, it ruins intimacy, right? Such as, if you tell your friends when you're on the hunting trip, I really enjoy our intimacy. You've broken that boundary, and there's a really decent chance that they don't want to hunt with you anymore. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay? Think we can understand that? But it means different things, right? Intimacy is more than just that sexual component. There, there's, a, there's a context here, and I believe boundaries protect intimacy. When intimacy is protected, it increases intimacy. And appropriate intimacy involves appropriate emotional, mental, and physical interaction. Okay? On a hunting trip, you can shake hands. You can't hug. Okay? Appropriate physical expressions of intimacy. Does that make sense? Okay, they shoot something, it's a high five. It's not a big embrace, all right? Let me show you what this looks like. In a traditional framework of, of uh, the Christian framework and what God has created, opposite sex marriage is set apart. Hold on a second, man. Before you do that, give a couple of just the examples like you have here. Um, like, for example, with a kid. Oh, okay. Um, intimacy with a kid or, or intimacy with okay. a, a close friend or something like that. Thank you, I skipped past that. Uh, even in the relational component, one of the examples I have here is, is that we teach, we teach our children appropriate boundaries in the physical component, and we teach them strangers don't get to touch your body. Okay, that's an appropriate boundary. But then we take them to the doctor, and we tell them this stranger gets to touch your body, right? Because they're doing an examination uh, in an appropriate kind of a context, right? Different relationships have different boundaries, different appropriate levels, okay? That's significant. Uh, in, let me see. I'm going to get to the other examples past this, I think. Is that right? 
Is that the right one? Did I catch what you wanted, Doc? Okay. All right. So, in the context of a traditional Christian framework, God has set aside opposite-sex marriages as the only place for sexual intimacy. And it's a boundary that cuts off the possibility of sex with anyone else. It's highly restrictive. And in some respects, it's against our inclinations. For everybody, right? There is a sense that every single one of us has, at some point, had a desire for sexual intimacy for someone other than our spouse. That's normal. A desire is a normal thing. A sexual desire is a normal thing. We all struggle with the appetite of that. We all struggle um, with appetite just in general, even if we don't want to talk about this in a sexual component. And it seems like there's even something that kind of works in us to kind of drive those appetites. Every single person who is a follower of Jesus, and but again, I think the standard is just beyond Jesus' followers, everyone has this reality that at times they have to sacrifice their desires. There's high boundaries, high clear boundaries that we're all called to, one sexual partner, and when we say yes to Jesus, it means that we're saying no to other things. Does that make sense? Okay? God's created this way. He's, he's created a very limited way in which we can express ourselves and, and this kind of a desire is very limited, very, very high boundaries. But marriage also creates immense freedom and security for loving sexual intimacy without fear of critique or abandonment. All sorts of studies, all sorts of scientific studies. I don't know if you know anything about this or if you would be able to speak to this. But there's lots of scientific studies that have spoken to the sexual fulfillment that exists within a marriage versus outside of marriage. Um, and it consistently, our culture would tell you that people outside of marriage are having more fun and more sex. Scientific studies are saying the opposite. Complete opposite. Okay? Uh, they have, in a protected, healthy marriage, where sexual boundaries have been honored and respected, there's a very high level of intimacy, even in a sexual component. There's a study done by uh, University of Chicago, and they found that married people reported having more sex and better sex. Amen. And, there we go. <laughs> Man, the first time anybody's re been responsive in our class before. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes even further. If you liked that, wait for this. <laughs> it says that married religious or spiritual couples showed they had even more sex and even better sex. There we go. All right. There we go. All right. Which tells us God's way works. When we do it the way that God has designed, it protects it. When we respect the boundaries, it increases the intimacy. It actually makes it more fulfilling. It makes it more satisfying. It makes it better. It makes it something that we pursue even more. Boundaries protect intimacy. Protected intimacy increases intimacy. In the same context, if you look at other, side, other kinds of relationships, they all fall in a different kind of a place. They all prohibit sex. So anything outside of that heterosexual marriage, sex isn't a part of the relationship, right? So high boundaries again. But they create intimacy where you can have intimacy with multiple people, connect with them in the heart, in the mind, 
And even there's a physical component that's appropriate in other forms of intimacy. I know this is weird, so you got to stay with me. Let me explain this. The context of a family relationship. You have a, a parent. In fact, I had this conversation with my daughter maybe a week ago. And I said, I miss reading you stories. And she said, why? My daughter is 17 years old. And she's like, why? Partly because I'm not known to be a reader. So the idea that I'm missing reading is a weird idea to her, all right? And so I say this to her, and she doesn't get it. And I said, I miss knowing that if I offered to read you a book, you would climb in my lap and cuddle with me and sit there for a while while I read you a story. Right? Okay? Okay. That is appropriate intimacy, isn't it? It's me with my daughter doing something together, a close bond. There's a physical component to it, but there's also an emotional and a relational component, deep intimacy. If I turn that sexual, what does it do? Destroys. Absolutely destroys it, doesn't it? Okay? And some would suggest in our culture, if you're not experiencing sexual intimacy, then, it, then it's lesser intimacies. And that's not true. This is one of the lies of our culture. We trade in good quality intimacy in the pursuit of sexual intimacy over and over and over again. And there's appropriate ways for intimacy to exist, and we abuse it. And when we abuse it, it actually ruins, it wastes intimacy, right? You know this even in a heterosexual context. If you sleep around before you get married, does it have an impact on your spouse? You didn't know your spouse at the time. You weren't cheating on your spouse, but you carry that with you, don't you? And when you step into a relationship, there's, there's consequences of that kind of behavior. Our culture won't acknowledge that. Our culture won't say that. But the truth is, we carry these things with us. There's appropriate intimacies and inappropriate intimacies. I was going to say, I have, an, I have another example too, right? So as a mental health therapist, I have very intimate conversations with my patients and intimate in the way that Ben is saying, which is a very personal conversation, but there's no physical relationship there. But I understand their heart, their thoughts, um, how they process things, how they work through things, right? Um, I have a code of ethics that I have to abide by. If I had a sexual relationship with any of my patients, um, the state would take my license. Um, so that kind of is another example that shows um, how you can have an intimate relationship, but there's a boundary. And even professionally, we can't cross that boundary. And they're there, that boundary is there to protect you if you were my, my patient or my client. It's so that I don't then go into a higher authority or a higher power um, and take advantage of you opening up and sharing you know, your thoughts, your feelings, and being intimate with me. Absolutely. It's the same example we had of the doctor earlier. There's appropriate touching of a doctor to a patient, to a child, to any patient of any age. There's appropriate. We also know that there's a line there, don't we? And we know that that can be abused. We might even know names of doctors who have because they were in the news and they lost their license, all right? And so there's, even within those levels of intimacy, there's still boundaries that protect that intimacy. If you go to a doctor and you don't like the way that he was looking at you or talking, if he did something that broke that boundary, you don't go a second time, right? He broke it, it ruined it, I don't trust you, we're not there anymore. It's the same with all these other kinds of things. Same within friendships. There's an intimacy of emotional, relational component. There's appropriate interaction in friendships, right? I, I have friends, women, and men. There's appropriate interactions I have with them. There's shaking of hands. 
Sometimes there's a hug. Sometimes there's a pat on the back. Sometimes, uh, sometimes in unique cases, there may be a long embrace when there's significant pain or hurt or something that's happened. There's appropriate forms of interaction. But we also understand there's boundaries. And to add something sexual to these components ruins relationship, doesn't it? It ruins, it kills intimacy. It absolutely does. We know these things. And what I want to challenge here Oh, I missed that slide. We'll just move forward. What I want to challenge here is that sex may be a form of intimacy, but it's not the only form of intimacy. And it doesn't make other levels of intimacy less valuable. Okay? It's appropriate in the right places and the ways in which God has designed it. But when we, when we pursue sexual intimacy outside of those ways that God's designed, it actually leaves a trail of destruction. The Bible invites us to pursue human love in different forms. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that I read, and I don't think we'll have time to get there, so I'll just mention it real quick, uh, but within the book that I mentioned earlier from Rebecca McLaughlin, she says this. She says, most people think that the Bible condemns same-sex relationship. It's not true. It commands them. You're expected to have friends of the same sex. You're not expected to have sex with them. But it's expected that there be intimacy. We, part of the church is that we share life together, that we do life together, that, that we walk through things together. There's an expected level of intimacy that should be existing. And so we ought to be pursuing those in their proper place, in their proper time. And I, I believe that homosexuality is one of those ways in which we've abused proper boundaries and relationships and intimacy. It's, it's a way that our culture has lied to us in pursuing something in the wrong kind of a way. I went for a long time. Doc, you want to add anything to all that? No, all right. There we go. Uh, well, I'm going to mention this just real brief, okay, because we don't have time to get into this, and I want to get to the end because I think that's what you guys are going to want to deal with. Uh, blue blood heterosexuality is not the goal of the Christian life. Jesus is. That's important, too, that we understand that we're, again, keeping this proper place proper time. And with this, if you look up in the corner, it says longing versus loneliness. Quite frequently, for the person who's struggling with homosexuality and is also struggling with Jesus in a relationship with him and trying to figure out how the two can coexist. In their mind, they've told themselves that I either have to be lonely or I can't be a Christian. They convince themselves that sex has to be a part of my life somehow. A relationship of that intimacy has to be a part of my life somehow. And so either I have to be lonely the rest of my life, but I have Jesus, or, or I can have a relationship, but then I lose Jesus. And we convince ourselves those are the options. I don't think that's fair for multiple reasons. One, Jesus never marries. Paul isn't married. Paul commends marriage, but he also says that singleness is better, which... I don't know. <laughs> Some people might feel that way. I don't know. Right? Right? Okay. We've bought into this lie that sex is the only thing that can really fulfill us in this world. Our culture just keeps feeding it. And it's not true. What's fascinating is if you look into the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, one of the great lines in there, uh, talking about the early church, it says that everybody was together, they shared everything they had, and it said nobody lacked anything. They had a lot of things up against them in their world at that time. They had people trying to kill them for what it was that they believed, but they didn't lack anything, and they certainly didn't lack community. 
loneliness wasn't the burden they were dealing with. Okay? It's possible for the Christian who's struggling with same-sex attraction that they may feel lonely. The church needs to do better. There needs to be that community. There needs to be that, that friendship that exists to where nobody has to walk through this world alone. It's a big deal to me. Anything you want to add to that, Doc? Okay. All right. We're, we're flying through this again just because I want to get to this end part here because my gut tells me these are some of the questions that you guys have. Uh, it's one thing for us, and again, I want to point out that this is a conversation for Christians, especially this part. When we talk about some practical application, these are questions that Christians act. If you're, if you're not a Christian, you're probably not real worried about these questions. But within us, what are the appropriate responses for us? And we are at 726. We've got four minutes left. These are going to require more than four minutes. And so if you need to get up and go get your kids, feel free. You can watch the rest of this. We're going to go probably, I'm guessing, at least five minutes over here, spend some time. You guys can step out if you need to. If you've got kids, I would encourage you to step out because our volunteers would love that if you would. Uh, but come back and watch the video again. It's going to be online. This will be posted to our YouTube channel to where you can go back and view it and, and walk through some of this kind of stuff. But we just want to have a real brief discussion in working through some of these kinds of things, such as this. When your son or your daughter comes out to you as having... Uh, same-sex attraction, either being uh, gay or lesbian, what is an appropriate response as a parent? That's a tough question, right? That's difficult. And all sorts of different contexts, all sorts of different responses. Here's, here's where I think we'll go just to kind of lead this off. Uh, one of the things I said this past Sunday that I thought was really important, Jesus and Paul never affirmed what they call sin. Okay? They never altered what they said was wrong to accommodate somebody who was in the wrong. But they never allowed sin to interfere with their relationship with that person. That's significant. Okay? And it's hard. All right? It's complex. And sometimes it's not on you. Sometimes the other person may push away or try to break relationship. That, that may be the case. I think that in this kind of a scenario, you now carry the greater weight of proving love. And proving love won't come in the context of affirming, shouldn't come in the context of affirming. But you now have a burden. Unfortunately, you now have a burden to carry to prove to them that regardless, you continue to love them. And that's really challenging. Yeah, this is, this is really, really tough. You know, we keep on talking about truth and grace. What happens sometimes when a, a kid comes out, you know, some parents are all over truth and they drive their kid away. Some of them are all over grace and they drive them away from God. I mean, you got both things, you know, as a Jesus follower is truth and grace. You never accommodate truth to sin. Does that make sense? On the other hand, you never stop loving. Jesus didn't, Jesus doesn't. Okay? It's hard as all get out. I mean, these are easy things to say, terribly difficult things to do. But it's got to have both of those components. Another big conversation that often comes up is the context of a gay wedding. What do you do if you get invited into that? If, before we move on to that, any thoughts or questions, anything you want to ask about that first question? Okay, go ahead. Uh, hang on. Ben, can you run up real quick? Right up, Ben, right up here, second row. All right, there we go. If, if that were to happen to you, how do you, uh, do you just say, I love you, but I 
don't approve of this? Like, how do you how do you show the love without affirming? There are all sorts of ways that you show your love to your children, even when they disobey you, even whenever they misbehave at, at, at a very simple level. Okay, let's let's make it very very simple. One of the things that my wife used to make me do that I absolutely hated, okay, was that when my children got in trouble and I had to spank them, my wife required that I hug them afterwards. I hated that because I didn't want to hug them. I wanted to spank them, <laughs> all right? Two very different emotions for me and what needed to happen in that moment. But she, and she's I, like 99% sure she's right on this, she made me hug them to show them that I love you, all right? Now, I don't suggest that you spank your adult child and then give them a hug. But what I mean by this is that, that you've, you've maneuvered through this your entire life raising your child. Of times when you've had to be hard on them when they were young to discipline them, but then you also prove to them that you love them. One of the things that I believe deeply in is the value of laughter. Um, when a child, especially a young child, when a child gets in trouble with you or they're disciplined, they don't know if you love them anymore. They're young. They don't understand. And so they jump to these big conclusions. They think, oh, no, I'm in trouble, and now my parents hate me. One of the ways that you prove to them that you love them is that you laugh and have fun with them. When you laugh and have fun with a child, it makes them relax and realize you still like me. You still love me. You, you try not to laugh while you're spanking them. Don't laugh when you're spanking them. That's a mixed signal. That's a good point. But for, for, so for me, yeah, yeah, that causes trauma. Absolutely. And then, yeah. Well, what I'm talking about here, and, and very real, okay? And this, is, this has been my story of people that I love who mean a lot to me uh, who've come out gay or, or lesbian. And my conversations with them that have been difficult and hard, and I've, I've had to look someone in the eye and say, I really love you. I can't mentally get to the same place you're at. I don't agree with the conclusion you've come to. The healing part and the way I showed them love was that we still laugh together. We still have fun together. Those, in fact, those actually bind and heal our relationship. But it means you have to get in the same room together. You've got to do something together. You, you, have, to, you have to continue living with that person as you were before that moment, if that makes sense. And again, I know that sometimes this, for some of you, maybe feeling like maybe it's too late. That, that's already passed. I didn't handle it well, or they've thrown up walls and they've pushed me away. I think in those situations, what you're doing is you're trying to break down those walls. How can I get back in the same room with them? How can I get back to this place where I can spend some time with them? What can I do with them where I can laugh in their presence with them and be happy near them and let them know I just want to be around you. I still love you. Does that make sense? I think that's powerful. Let me just add a little piece. I know it's late, but kind of understand that on these questions, these are intensely difficult, right? And if you read a lot of Christian, serious Christian writers, they're going to give you different answers to these, okay? I'm not sure that, you know, I have an opinion on what I do, but I'm not sure mine is the only right way that a Christian can respond, okay? These are intensely difficult, um, just with respect to this one here, um, you, never, you never compromise truth. You never affirm or enable sin. We neither affirm nor enable sin. Okay? They've got to know we, gotta, we, st we still love them. 
Now, you can try to still love them, and they may just come to the conclusion that you don't because you don't affirm and enable. You can't control that. You cannot stop. You can't start affirming and enabling because they don't think you love them. It's got to be truth and grace. Here's the other piece, though. Um, I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen within my own extended family. Uh, a kid starts, or one of them starts living in sin, and every time another one of our family members talks to them, the first thing they talk about is hammering their sin over and over and over and over again. Sometimes it's kind of like this. You know, I told you that that's a sin. You're still doing it, so you must not have heard me, so let me say it louder this time. Okay? You're still doing it, so let me say it louder this time. Sometimes they know what you think, and when you start nagging, repeating something when they know exactly what you think, what they'll start doing is throwing up barriers where they don't want to talk to you anymore, right? You're never passing, you're never going beyond that where you're enabling or affirming, but when they understand exactly where you're coming from, okay, you can, you can love them without having to lecture them every time you talk to them, all right? I think that's a, a pretty important deal. Well, and, that's, and that goes with one of the statements I made at the end of the sermon, which was you are more than your, your sexual desires. When you only speak to that specific part of their life, if you keep hammering it, what you're telling them is, I don't see anything about you other than this sin. And so you may have to tell them how you feel, but you don't have to tell them every single time. That There can be that opportunity to kind of break away and, and share life. For me, again, I'll tell you, the healing moments have come whenever I'm able to see past that sin and see that they're, they're still the same person I've always loved. They're not different because, because now I know this part about them. It's the same. We're at 735. We've hit one of the questions. This is great. Bellamy, what do you got? Yeah, I just wanted to point out that when I've had experiences talking with folks who are struggling with these type of things, more often than not, uh, they shut me down immediately because the five or six or 20 Christians or good-hearted folks who have talked to them confronted them with truth or grace, but not either. And they were rejected. So every time we fail to do what you've been talking about all night, that simply puts up a stronger barrier for the next chance uh, that person has to hear healthy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you do if you're invited to a gay wedding? Um, these are complex questions, all right? And there, there's a way that I would answer this about 98 or 99% of the time. I think in my own mind I can create some exceptions. And that's tough. And I don't know that I would counsel anyone in that same kind of a way. Generally speaking, I think I wouldn't go. Um, I, I, I think about my own children. Would I go to something like that? Doc and I, we've talked about this. I, I struggle with that one. I struggle with, in those big moments, is there a way to show them that you love them without affirming what they're doing? It's hard. And it's hard to compare this sin to other kinds of sins. Uh, people in the homosexual community really hate this. You know, it's, you know I, I would draw the illustration of saying, well, if I had a son who was an alcoholic, would I go with him to the bar? <laughs> Uh, well, that, that's not apples and apples, right? Like, that, that's kind of a different context. It's, it's complicated. I, I don't even know if this is the right answer, okay? I think Romans 14 may have something to do with this in the context of opinion. 
and giving freedom in opinion and a freedom of convictions and not holding that against one another. I can see a context in which someone I know would go to a gay wedding and I wouldn't feel disappointed in them for attending it. Does that make sense? I don't think that's a decision I would make. I don't think that's a decision I would counsel. But I think there may be a sliver of room in there for opinion. Doc, would you say that differently? Would you challenge me on that? I'm a little bit harder yeah. on that. I would, I would say Now, I do not, as I said, these are very, very complex. And I know Christians that I respect deeply who disagree with me. Okay? I can't get there myself but I'm not going to judge another Jesus follower who's trying to exhibit truth and grace, all right? Like I said, I can't get there myself. Yeah. And uh, that's a hard one for me. Yeah. But uh, I know others who disagree, and I don't disrespect them because they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the big issues that's come up recent years, do I serve a gay or lesbian customer? We've seen this in courts. We've seen this debated on, on a national, federal level. Uh, with, with cake makers and different things. Men, you guys may not even know this, but I don't know if you remember years ago when the first thing happened in Denver with the cake maker and all that kind of stuff about not wanting to make a cake. Um, there was a huge scandal that rocked the little community that Christy and I lived in uh, up in northern Indiana because a news station went to a random pizza place in town, uh, in a little town, and asked them if they would cater a wedding for a gay couple, which to me is hilarious the idea that they were asking this little pizza parlor if they would cater a wedding for a gay couple. I, that to me, premise is funny itself. But the owner said no, and the station ran with it and got a lot of publicity and a lot of attention for running with it and trashing it. It all happened in a little town called Walkerton, Indiana. That's where Christine and I were living up, up north before we moved here. We didn't live in Walkerton, you're right. We lived in North Liberty, which was nicer than Walkerton. Uh, we... we we referred to Walkerton as Walker Tucky. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Anyway, <laughs> jokes on me. Jokes on me. And when I, you know, when I say we, the community, not so much me and Christina, the the community. <laughs> Nonetheless, all right. So it's a big issue. You guys are aware of that. I understand a business owner who wouldn't want to do business specifically for a wedding in a similar context to what we're talking about as far as attending a wedding. I get that. Uh, it's, there's, there's a different line, in my opinion, when it comes to customers, okay? Uh, if making, making a, a catering a meal for, for a wedding is a different deal than just serving them pizza when they walk in the door. Right? It's a different level of situation, and I think we have to differentiate between that. Doc, you have anything you want to say? <laughs> the more I say, the more he doesn't want to say anything. All right. Here's, a, here's one more that we've had conversations about. In fact, I was asked about this last week as a question to deal with within the transgender conversation. But oftentimes, there's a, uh, there's a movement sometimes in Christianity where there's uh, a desire to stop doing business with companies that support the LGBTQ communities. And what is, you know, the question is, what's the appropriate response of a Christian? Recently, we've seen these debates, like I've seen it over the years about Starbucks, I've seen it about Target, I've seen it about, who else? Like, uh, lots of them. What else? Bud Light. Bud Light came up, right? Yeah. 
Doc stopped drinking Bud Light when all that happened. <laughs> right, right. Haven't touched it since. Haven't touched it since. That's right. That's right. All right. And so oftentimes those things will come up. Some people have deep convictions about that. If I'm going to answer that question, my answer would be me, me personally, I don't care. Because I don't feel like doing the research to check every single business and all the things that they do and don't support to determine where I'm going to get my groceries or anything else, okay? I don't want to live like that, all right? That, and that's my only reason why, all right? We live in a world that's so complex right now, and I think that if you're going to live by this, I, I would say you better live by that. If you're going to post on social media, don't you dare shop at Target because of what they support. You better make sure that every other place you swipe your card doesn't also support it. I think, I think that requires a level of accountability and, and uh, honesty within that. I don't want to live like that. So personally, I don't have that conviction. Do you feel differently, Doc? Carrie, can you help me out here, somebody? <laughs> I concur. I concur. There we go. We agreed. So now, no. <laughs> but I got my Starbucks here. There we so go. That's there we go. <laughs> Toby said they're still stuck on Walker Tucky. I I really stepped into that one. I thought that was funny, and so be it. Yeah. Don't you. Uh, my opinion, that all the, all the ones we're talking about with the gay wedding and the customers and the businesses, those are all you'd be enabling. That's, some, that's all enabling. Some people feel that way, and some people have that that's, conviction. That's yeah. my opinion. That, and that's fantastic. And if, so so my, my thing, my counter to that would be if you feel convicted by that, that's great. I would also tell you, in order not to be a hypocrite, I think you need to do research on every single place you spend your money. Now, and that may be too extreme on my part too, okay? There's, a, there's an aspect of what you know and what you don't know that allows maybe some, some freedom of conscience, but personally. Apostle Paul said, if you think it's a sin, don't do it. If you think it's a sin, don't do it. There we go. So did James. So did James. There we go. And there was something else I thought of earlier. Oh, uh, on that first one, one of the verses that came to mind was um, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I think, I think that one speaks to all this as well. So far as it depends on us, we ought to be living in a peaceful way towards absolutely everyone that we're coming in contact with. And I think that applies to a lot of these as well. <laughs> How many things are you going to come talk to me about in my office tomorrow, Doc? <laughs> as I mentioned, I really believe this. Um, these are in intricate questions. We can disagree and love each other. When the Bible speaks clearly, you better speak. Yeah. When the Bible doesn't speak clearly, be careful about making rules for God. Yeah. It's just as wrong to make up rules for God that you make others live by as it is not to go by God's rules. Okay? So when there's gray areas, develop your own convictions and don't violate your convictions. But if it's not clear in the scripture, be careful about making it a rule for your brothers and sisters. Okay, and that's kind of what yeah. these things are about. And, th and that is Romans 14, which is dealing with meat sacrificed to idols. And there's some people walking through the market saying, I'll eat any meat I can find, right? And there's others saying, well, you don't know where that meat came from. Maybe it was sacrificed to an idol. Some people have convictions, some don't. Paul says, live by your convictions. And then don't hold others, don't hold it against others who have freedom if you don't have freedom. 
I think that applies to some of this as well. All right, we've gone way past, and you guys stuck it out. I think you're going to mug me, but that's cool. And uh, we, had, we had a good run. It was great. We had a good time. Appreciate it. Glad you guys are here. Let me just pray for us real quick, and we'll be done. God, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the opportunity, again, just to look at your word. God, we thank you for what you've revealed to us. God, we live in a complex and broken world. And there are missteps everywhere around us. There's lots of ways that we get this wrong. This has never been about us pointing a finger or highlighting the sin of others. This has always been about us and our heart and our humility trying to understand how we can honor you and how we can love the people around us. Give us a heart that is convicted to love like you love and to hold firm to truth like you've called us to do. God, you're good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.